1: A monthly program featuring information on career and academic planning, sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. And now, here's your host, the Assistant Director of the Office of Career
0: Advancement, Reuben Britt. Welcome to Career Talk, I'm your host Ruben Britt. Henry Broham once said that education makes a people easy to lead, but difficult to drive, easy to govern, but impossible to enslave. My guest today reflects that quote because she has provided a a platform for people that she serves to become leaders and not become victims of psychological slavery and self-aid. Joining me today is Dr. Alicia Monroe and the co-author of the book, Don't Dismiss My Story, The Tapestry of Colonized Voices in White Space. Dr. Monroe, welcome to Career Talk.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. Britt. It is truly a privilege and honor to sit here with my co-author Ruben Britt um, to discuss these critical issues that although professed itself as historical um, concerns, historical problems, historical trauma, historical slavery, historical oppression, we see it manifested in current day actions attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs. So it's truly an honor to to sit here and have a moment to unpack this stuff with my co-author.
0: And I am honored to, to co-author the, bu- bu- the book with you as well. But before we get into um, the book, I think people need to know a little bit about your background, and I will sh- follow up with uh, a little bit about my background. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional journey?
1: Absolutely. Right now, currently, I'm in higher education at Rowan University. I um, serve on both sides of the house. I work as the assistant director of strategic initiatives as part of the operational side of Rowan University, but I'm also an adjunct faculty member. I teach undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral courses in ed leadership, anything with regards to diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, access. And um, I also teach a course that um, I designed and created entitled Black Lives Matter An Ethnographic Perspective of the Movement. So I teach in the Africana Studies program as well as the College of Education. I am a pre K through 20 educator, re careered from corporate, government, and nonprofit. So I've been in pre K through 12 and literally have been in urban, rural, as well as spent some time on tribal land so i have a nice diversity of experiences in different sectors that definitely informs my lens around the narrative of our book
0: now i um i've worked in uh k through 12 for seven and a half years boston public school district and then i transitioned to higher education which i've been in higher education for over thirty-nine years um, as uh, the director of cooperative education at Bloomsburg University, and the uh, coordinator of career services at Rich uh, Stockton University, and currently I am the director, assistant director for the Office of Career Advancement at Rowan University. Now, this is a question for for us both. What prompted you to write the book?
1: What prompted me to write the book is I lived. It- realities and our lived experiences. So um, as Toni Morrison said, and as we open our book, it was clear that um, there wasn't another book like it. And Toni Morrison specifically says, if you find a book you really want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. So what is it to have a counter dismissal narrative Right. To actually elevate the voices that have been subjugated, oppressed and suppressed historically. What is historical marginalization? And then what is it to sit inside spaces day in and day out where white privilege and entitlement continue to prevail, continue to make the decisions, continue to control the narrative? Well, we needed to really speak that truth. Um, I saw it in, as a research practitioner, I did see it in spaces because I'm an avid reader and I would have to be. I saw it in the data, but I didn't see it all in one place. And most importantly, I didn't see where it hit the ground, where we could actually visualize it in the spaces that we actually reside in and work through every day. So what prompted me to have this conversation, to, to share this narrative, is my personal experience and the his, the experiences of our ancestors and our forefathers.
0: And likewise, uh, you know, I, I this book is also um, includes a lot of the things that I've experienced as, as an educator. Um, and as I mentioned before, I, I have experience in K through 12. And I recognize that the Curriculum in, in, in uh, public education has never really been uh, changed to, to uh, serve the needs of all students. How does this book explore the concept of colonized voices in white space?
1: What it does is it actually traces the history of colonization. From the founding of our country right it traces the contradictions and the hypocrisy of what is freedom what is justice what is liberty and what is for all and who who was actually included in the colonialist thought of all and it traces that through all of our countercultures civil rights and social consciousness movements and it moves it to today what do we see show up in our classrooms how do we see that activated in our learning communities and um to that point we were very specific about engaging every reader in the self-work through self-reflection because the work starts with ourselves the work starts with understanding and accepting and acknowledging our own mental models and the need for us to intentionally shift those mental models and those paradigms to welcome diverse world worldviews and different thinking and different cultures, traditions, norms, and beliefs.
0: And the other thing is, is that all too often um, in, uh, those who are in power, who control the school system, um, tend to sway uh, in their point of view, in terms of the educational curriculum. And they, as I said before, it is, uh, it's been uh, uh, exclusive. And when you look at the, the, uh, the origin of public education, it was designed for the elite, for the rich. And the first female student to attend, the first public school in, in, in America, was, uh, which was Boston Latin, Ellen McGill, um, she was a, a beneficiary of, of white privilege because her father was the vice principal at Boston Latin. And that's even though her her being the first female in public school was was monumental, um she was she was uh, able to benefit from white privilege. Now, Dr. Moore, I wanna ask you this. What are some of the examples or insights from the book that highlight this theme? When you talk about the title.
1: We talk about it all. I mean I, I, I... Just wanna really highlight the fact that once we finished with our last chapter and we read the final manuscript before we passed it on to our publisher, we knew that our voice was heard, right? We knew that we were liberated in our thinking and it was academic freedom at its truest form. Um, What I want the audience to understand is though we set our experience and the setting is in education spaces, we could see it in all different industry sectors, whether it is tokenism, whether it is colorism, whether we're talking about the imposter syndrome and the need to co-switch in order to be accepted. Um, what is a microaggression versus a macroaggression? Um, what is it? to look like a dominant culture and the premise of power with the have and have nots and social stratification. And then we also provide solutions. So it is really a very deep examination of privilege and entitlement and colonization versus decolonized spaces. And these are the conversations and the intense analysis that we need to really be engaged in now. However, we must be courageous and bold about what that exchange is, and we should hold each other accountable
0: for what those solutions are. One of the things that we talk about in the book is how indigenous people, uh, indigenous students were, uh, children were kidnapped by the U.S. government where they were taken to boarding schools for the purpose of assimilation. And um, Charles Curtis, who was the first and only Native American vice president of the United States, he was under Herbert Hoover, uh, tried to encourage the indigenous people to assimilate. And of course, they shunned um, his recommendations. And when you look at the total spectrum or the tapestry, let's say, it, put it that way, the tapestry of uh, um, colonized voices, uh, the underrepresented uh, students all too often, they are um, they are victims. They become victims of psychological slavery because the the text in, in the curriculum is uh, based on a Euro Eurocentric slant. And so, when you look at the whole whole realm of this, and you talk about the the Department of U.S. Department of Education that doesn't really have uh, any type of input in um, the curriculum of of schools. Throughout the United States, their main, their basic four p- uh, purposes are: is to make sure that all students have access to public education. They also um, are responsible for collecting data. Uh, they are also responding to uh, issues that may uh, 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 pertain to education, such as uh, Title IX. And then the fourth uh, uh, function is that they provide uh, grants and and and. Uh, uh, any type of funding, grant funding. But other than that, they have no, no emphasis or no impact on the curriculum. So it's, it's so important, and we talk about this in the book, how the, that the local school districts uh, are the ones that are able to make change in, in this regard. Now, Dr. Monroe, in what ways do personal stories and narratives play a role in addressing issues related to colonization and marginalized voices?
1: So I'm going to share a personal story. Right now I'm teaching uh, intro to uh, Africana studies. And um, I just moved through pre-colonial society, the old world versus the new world, and um, uh, moved them this past week into the Middle Passage and the transatlantic slave trade. And to see my students really not understand the riches of our country the, the brilliance of our people, the fact that we were kings and queens and we built cities and we're amazing mathematicians and true intellects, philosophers, astronomers, geologists, I can go on and on and on to look at the, the resources of these rich cities and them not understanding from whence they came really is startling because of the generation after the generation, century after century of identity lynching, the stripping away, the ruptures of the whitewashing and brainwashing of a true uh, ethnic group, race, a culture to have them feel inferior It's startling. So, what I see is my lived reality every day as a professor in a classroom teaching these courses. My courses are very diverse, and in some cases, those who represent um, the the dominant group per se, white students may know more of the history than non-white students which is saying, which speaks to the disparity in level of education and quality learning that we um, heavily engage in conversation in, in the book.
0: And, and, and to add to that, um, you had talked about how it, 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 it develops a, a sense of um, self-hate <laughs> um, because the, 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 the tenor of the uh, curriculum is as I said before, is based on a Eurocentric slant. And when you look at uh, the psychological impact that it has on students, we, we want to look at the the three ways on how you can um, control the mindset of people um, through the media, through religion, and through education. And of the three, education has more of an impact because you have the students for a longer period of time, and when they're in the, the walls of of uh, education, all too often they're, 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 they're programmed to think that they're less than. And it's so important to understand that by controlling their minds, um, they have no vision, they have no hope, um, there's no con- connection. And most importantly, it, it's there's a, a void between the relationship between the student and the instructor, also the student uh, between the student and the uh, principal, administrators, guidance counselors, who oftentimes will um, uh, be victims of uh, being uh, dream killers. And so when you look at the whole uh, realm of the educational process, it's imperative to, to uh, uh, to have the mindset that it needs to be more inclusive. You're listening to Career Talk. I'm your host, Ruben Britt. I'm joined to h- today with Dr. Alicia Monroe, who is the co-author of the book with me, Don't Dismiss My Story, The Tapestry of Colonized Voices in White Space. We're gonna hear more from Dr. Monroe and myself in just a few minutes, so stay with us. Welcome back to Career Talk. We're here today with Dr. Alicia Monroe, who is the co-author of the book, Don't Dismiss My Story, in the tapestry of colonized voices in white space. Um, and I am also the co-author of the book as well. Now, Dr. Monroe, um, how does the, the book address in, intersexuality of, of identities such as race, ethnicity, gender, and culture in the context of colonization and its aftermath?
1: I kind of wanted to go back, and I, I will lead into this, the answer to this question, but nope. I, I, I really wanted to dovetail off of your last comment, Mr. Britt. I want, you know, I want to think about the concept and the construct of genocide, and what is genocide, right? It is killing off of a specific race of people. It could be ethnic, it could be a culture, but it's definitely a target. And if we think about identity and identity for black, brown, indigenous, marginalized groups, it's all about agency and how we feel about ourselves. How do we esteem ourselves? What is our confidence? And if we don't feel hopeful, then our life trajectory is dismal. So if we are starting to move students and scholars through a system, as we talk about discipline, disproportionality, right, and the school to prison pipeline in our book, right? And then you're noticing a disparity between how teachers perceive the behavior of marginalized students from marginalized groups in comparison from, from their white counterparts, and the discipline disparities, you're noticing that there is, an, as a natural default, the movement of marginalized groups of students along a life trajectory of hopelessness. What we're seeing in the education system, and bear in mind, the education system is one thing we all have in common. We have all gone to school, pre-K through 12, at least there. I want us to think about what is that experience like? And that's what we talk about in all of the vignettes. All of the vignettes that we offer in the book are case study scenarios that you and I developed based on our experiences as educators, as parents, as counselors, and as mentors. So the book is laden with real-world experiences.
0: And if, as a follow-up, how, how might reading this book impact readers' perspectives of, and awareness of colonization and the voices often marginalized uh, within the white spaces?
1: Interestingly enough, I, um, I have a, a couple of colleagues. There's a school district in Texas that has taken on the book immediately and have started a book study. Hmm. And they said to me, they said, you know, Doc, um, you know, the size of the book is is a little deceptive. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, it looks like it's small, but it took us three or four readings just to get through the first chapter. And we're still unpacking it. It's so heavy because we didn't realize how we're positioning ourselves within the history of this country within the perceptions of the country, within uh, the hypocrisy of the country. What is being said is not what's being done. Um, And I want us to really think about that when we think about colonized voices. What is it to amplify all voices? What is it to center all voices? We talk about cultural relevance, cultural proficiency, The importance of multicultural curriculum which you um referred to earlier today but then are our teachers masterful enough to be able to teach this content without having their own personal bias color the color the narrative how are we training our teachers how are we training our administrators and in higher ed how are you sensitizing the entire culture in higher ed to be really be responsive to all the diversity that they serve
0: it's it's interesting that you mentioned that i spoke with a gentleman yesterday who, who read the book uh, well he read uh, he read the first seven uh, pages and he had to read it over again because it was so impactful and and also um, it, it kind of opened up his eyes of things that he really didn't think about when it comes to um, colonized voices. Now, are there any uh, specific um, antidotes, antidotes uh, or characters in the book that exemplify this idea of, of uh, having an inclusive society?
1: Well, there, there are a couple of them, right? So I think we have about eight vignettes, all real-life scenarios, all case studies. Yes, You and I could relate to all of them, whether it it was uh, pre K through 12 or higher ed, because there's a sprinkling and a peppering of both. Um, What stood out to me was Esperanza's story. Esperanza um, was a, now she's doing extremely well. Um, Thank goodness for a first gen student, um, Latinx, was one of her multi hyphenated identities. Um, her parents were naturalized citizens, therefore that means that they were uh, immigrants. Um, and Esperanza was in a predominantly white uh, institution of higher learning. She attended a predominantly white college and um, her first year in college was phenomenal. She had a, an EOS advisor, that was a woman of color. And then in her sophomore year, that EOF advisor had moved on, and then she received a placement with another advisor. Another advisor was a young white woman who did not understand Esperanza. Esperanza um, had difficulty because that advisor chose to call her Hope instead of her name, because Hope is the American translation of Esperanza. And um, as soon as that disconnect happened, Esperanza had no communication with the advisor whatsoever. So we focus, and I'm just using that case study as an example, to really talk about the importance of connections and relationships and um as you say mr Britt, all the time a students or individuals know instinctively if you like them or not that's right so um there there was natural resistance for esperanza to become part of the system she no longer felt a sense of belonging and this was a student that used to basically live in the eof suite so that story sticks out a lot to me especially as I myself identify as an Afro-Latina.
0: Now, does the book offer any solutions, strategies, or calls to action for addressing the issues it raises?
1: Absolutely, and um, that's one thing. And let's share this space on this question, um, Ruben, only because that's one thing that you stressed. Um, As we were writing together, um, I, I recalled, as I was taking notes when you spoke, and you said, we have to provide solutions, right? And I would turn around and I said, okay, well we have to provide a framework. So that's a research practitioner, the educator, that's all of us coming together. So what we looked at is what is the authentically engaged community and offered up the environmental conditions for harmonious coexistence um, based on theory, based on data, Uh, and based on informed practice. And then we said, what are those solutions? And we discussed multicultural curriculum. Yes. um, And then we spelled out examples of how that works and I hope you share um, some of that as you respond to this question and the importance of that. We um, discussed the importance of teaching true history. Not anything that was diluted, not anything that was um, mutated or distorted, but true history to provide our students with pride, full understanding, and total scholarship. We discuss culturally relevant teaching. We also discuss cultural proficiency and understanding where we are on that cultural. Proficiency a uh, continuum. Are we at a point where we are destructive in nature, or are we masterful? So we discuss quite a few of these um, solutions in the book. Most importantly, though, Ruben, is the piece that you did on uh, framing and reframing communicative action.
0: It's important to understand that when you, when you, as teachers, instructors, it's a two-way street. Although you are the, the, the instructor, the teacher, and you have, you're, you're presenting a, uh, a particular lesson plan, it's also good to know the students and not uh, base them on assumptions, stereotypes, and the likes. And as, as uh, Dr. Monroe said earlier, students can tell if you truly care. Uh, what are some key takeaways uh, for the reader from this book?
1: The self-work is necessary. The fact that um, our reality is not someone else's worldview, and in order for us to truly develop a mosaic, we have to be engaged in iterative cycles of learning and unlearning so that, that we can come in authentic connection and authentic engagement with others in order to be change makers for all of
0: those that we serve. You've been listening to Career Talk. I'd like to thank my guest and co-author, Dr. Alicia Monroe, uh, who we both uh, co- uh, co-authored the book, Don't Dismiss My Story, The Tapestry of Colonized Voices in White Space. Until next time, stay positive. And remember, success does not come to you. You go to it. You've been listening to Career Talk, a monthly program featuring information on career and
1: academic planning, sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. Tune in on the first Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. for another edition of Career Talk, only on Rowan Radio, 89.7 WGLS-FM.